Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 83 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and um, things are going pretty well here um, in my world. Um, I, um, I'm in, an, I'm in a, a freshly cleaned and um, renewed uh, workspace here. Uh, my workspace was uh, getting pretty uh, disheveled. So um, for several reasons, we, uh, we cleaned it all up and I'm, I'm enjoying being in this space again. I can look out the windows and see, um, see things greening up here. The red buds are starting to bloom. Spring is springing, and uh, all things are right with the world, and um, and I think all things are right with um, with my podcast too. Um, so I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're gonna we're we're gonna continue uh, talking about following Jesus in the 21st century, and this is this is this is the title I kind of gave to this series. Um, it's there's been a lot of background. Um, because it's important background. It's a little bit of a recalibration uh, on the way we have uh, traditionally thought about some things that I think is necessary. Um, but we come now to um, a necessary discussion of the most important event in Christianity, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. And I've timed this all specifically around this because I wanted to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus for a couple of weeks prior to Easter, because that's when everybody's thinking about the resurrection. So I want us to I want us to think rightly about the resurrection. So um, this week and next week we're going to talk about the resurrection. Now, um, coffee. Uh, must have coffee. Okay, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead stands as the central defining feature of the Christian hope. Um, Paul says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most thorough explanation of the resurrection in the Bible. Um, we, we shouldn't just jump there. We should make sure we look at the, at the Gospels too. Uh, because they're telling a powerful story. And next week, I hope to um, um, do a, a kind of a deep dive into John's account of the resurrection uh, in the, the Gospel of John. But, um, but Paul is where everybody goes to, and, and there's good reason for that. Paul has a, a, a great treatise um, on the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the most thorough explanation of the resurrection in the Bible. But Paul says it's the, it's the most important thing. What he says is a couple of things. He says, for one, if Christ has not been raised, then our message is in vain, and so is our faith. If Christ has not been raised, we're, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised Jesus. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless, he says, and we're still in our sins. And if Christ has not been raised, uh, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, they've died, those people have perished. In other words, there's, there's no future hope for them 
if Jesus has not, in fact, been raised from the dead. And then he says, verse 19, he says, If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, I want to say a brief word on that statement. Um, and, and I'm not going to dig into this too deep, but I do want to say Paul is not talking in that verse about the hope of going to heaven when we die for all eternity. And he will make that clear in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, but he will also make that very clear in Romans 8. There's more to the story, and we're going to get into some of that today. Um, but I'm not going to say anything more about that. I just want to point out when Paul says what he says in verse 19, he's not talking about going to heaven when we die. Okay, but the point of all this is that there is a there is a lot hanging on the resurrection of Jesus. It's been said that if you if you strip away um, all the stories in the Bible of the birth of Jesus, you will lose a, a few chapters of the Bible. But but Christianity will remain firmly intact if we never knew anything about the birth of Jesus. But if you strip away the resurrection from the Bible stories, you're going to lose most of the New Testament, which hangs on the resurrection. And Christianity itself will crumble at that point. It is that important. But what I want to try to sketch out today is how and why the resurrection of Jesus became the central defining feature of Christianity. What did the earliest Christians believe happened at the resurrection? What did it mean to them? Because whatever it meant, whatever they thought it meant, fueled and drove the earliest Christian communities to transform their their world. It made them confident and fearless in in the face of hostile and powerful opposition It made them unyielding carriers of love and healing and redemption into the world around them. They cared for the sick. They provided for the poor. They took care of the weak. It inspired them to live lives of holiness in a way that was utterly unknown in the world around them. Uh, In fact, one uh, pagan writer uh, said about Christians that it was, he was baffled at their remarkable sexual self-restraint in the midst of a world that had no sexual self-restraint. Christians did, and it, and it flabbergasted him. The, those early Christians created a, a unity among themselves that, with, that was without parallel. And all of that was fueled by what they believed happened in that tomb on that first Easter morning. So what did they believe happened at the resurrection? What did it mean to them? Well, to understand that, not surprisingly, we have to go back to the Bible and lay some groundwork. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29, and this is the passage I'm going to use to kind of, kind of launch this part of the discussion. In the aftermath of Jesus' conversation with the man that we have come to call the rich young ruler, okay, uh, Matthew 19, 27 through 29, um, and, and Jesus' statement that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Peter says to his Lord, well, Lord, we've, we've left everything 
to follow you. And he asks, so, so what will there be for us? And Jesus responds to that question and he says, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Now, the, the part of that sentence there that I want to, um, or the couple of sentences there that I want to draw, draw our attention to is that first little phrase there where Jesus talks about a time that he calls the renewal of all things. Now, those five English words there are just one word in Greek. Um, the, the word is, and you don't have to know this, but the word is palingenesia. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. Palingenesia. It literally means um, regeneration or rebirth. But in this particular passage, it carries the idea, as one translation renders it, of God's great new world. So Jesus is saying, truly I tell you, in, the, in God's great new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, etc., etc. Okay? Now, Jesus, in his response to Peter there, he utters that phrase casually and without any explanation at all, as though Peter and the rest of the hearers around him would have immediately understood what he was referring to. And that is because they did. Jesus is tapping into a concept that all of his Jewish hearers would have immediately understood because it was something that they that had been a big part of their their hope for centuries but it's one of these things that most of us in western christianity are totally unfamiliar with when jesus referred to the renewal of all things palingenesia the people standing around him would have immediately um, had called to their mind a number of old testament passages um, passages they'd heard all their lives Passages like Isaiah 51, verse 11, which says, The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. Or another passage that would have come to mind is most of Isaiah chapter 60. And I'm just I'm not going to read all of that, but I'll read a few verses here. Um, verses 17 through 20. I will appoint peace as your government and righteousness as your overseers and violence will never again be heard of in your land. Devastation and destruction will be gone from your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your city gates praise. And the sun will no longer be your light by day and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you because the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set and your moon will not fade for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your sorrow will be over. Most of us just don't know what to do with promises like that, do we? But, but they're exciting, aren't they? They're 
They're promises that kind of make our hearts leap a little bit, don't they? I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a world like that? Most of us would be happy if even part of that turned out to to be true, right? So who are these promises for? And there's other passages in the Old Testament that, that, that have the same themes, right? This was a common thing. Who are these promises for? When is all this supposed to take place? Well, a few chapters later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gives us the answer. In Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19, he says, this is God speaking. God says, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I will create create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. The Jews carried that hope of a new heaven and a new earth a new creation in their hearts. And by the time of Jesus, they were desperate for it. But I want you to understand, this is not just an Old Testament promise. It's mentioned again at the very end of the book of Revelation, where we get a glimpse of the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God has been working toward in the world since the fall of man in Genesis 3. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Now, we need to slow down here and appreciate the details of what's being promised here because this is the final word of God and it sums up every biblical passage about our future. And one of the things we notice first is that this is not just talking about heaven. It's talking about a new, renewed earth. Our future as the people of God doesn't end with us leaving this earth and going to the sweet by and by forever. John shows us a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. And then he repeats this image in verses 10 and 11. The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from earth, arrayed with God's glory. And the point is God is bringing heaven to earth. The dwelling of God, which has always been heaven, is now coming to earth. God is going to dwell among his people once again, as he originally did in Eden. But this time, it's for good. 
And immediately after showing this vision to John, God says in Revelation 21 verse 5, he says, make sure and write this down because these words are faithful and true. Now, notice, God's not promising to make all new things. He's promising to make all things new. You see the difference, right? It's not that that God is tearing down the old and recreating everything from scratch. He's somehow transforming the old into the new. And many Christians have got this terrifying notion that God is going to utterly destroy the, the current earthly world and create a new heavenly one. But if we read Scripture carefully, and, and, and that's the important part, we have to read carefully. If we read Scripture carefully and think, we'll see that that's not actually what it says. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verses 19 to 23. He says, For the whole creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's children to be revealed. For the creation was subject to, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a lot in that passage, okay? And, and we're not going to break down all that at once. The point is, the whole creation is waiting, groaning, in labor pains, waiting for something big to happen. Now, Think about labor pains, right? There's, there's, there's travail, there's pain, there's groaning. But it's not about destruction. It's about new life being born, right? That's the image, right? The whole creation is, is, is waiting and groaning in, in labor pains until the new thing that God intends to be born is in fact born. So again, God is promising to recreate heaven and earth from the old material, bringing heaven to earth so that they will finally be one entity, one realm, not two. And God's dwelling will be among his people. And in this new creation, God's going to wipe away all tears. He will banish grief and crying and pain and death. And this new creation will be characterized by love and peace and joy, where justice will flow like a river and righteous like an unfailing stream, as Amos says. Now, clearly, that does not imply destruction, okay? Far from it. And the rest of the New Testament actually supports that. And I know that there are some places in the in the New Testament where um, if you just read them kind of fast, it, they seem to suggest total destruction. But if we read them carefully and think them through, we find out that that's not exactly what's what's being said. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. 
Peter says, By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. All right. Kind of sounds like total destruction, doesn't it? But let's examine that passage a little bit more carefully. And there, and there are two things, I think, at, at least two. There's probably more than that. I know there's more than that, but I, we just don't have time to do that. There are two things we need to pay attention to. First off, Peter kind of holds up the flood of Noah's day as kind of the, the image, the paradigm through which we're to understand the end of this age. He says, by these waters, the world of that time perished when it was flooded, he says. Verse 6, uh, the New International Version says that by these waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. But think about this just a little bit deeper. Was the world actually destroyed at the flood? No, not really. When those waters receded, the earth was right here where it's always been. New vegetation sprouted up where it had been previously. So the flood didn't destroy the earth, did it? The flood cleansed the earth and renewed it. And when Noah and his family stepped out of the ark, they stepped out onto a restored earth to begin anew. The second thing we need to pay attention to in this passage in 2 Peter is that Peter turns uh, from water to fire as that which will ultimately have its way with the earth. But here's the thing about fire. You have to understand how fire is used in the rest of the Bible. Throughout Scripture, fire is used again and again and again to talk about cleansing. Okay, For instance, you might remember that Paul said that our life's work will be tested and refined in the fire like gold, 1 Corinthians 3, 13-15. And the other thing we have to remember about this passage in 2 Peter we have to remember who's writing it, right? Because remember, it was Peter who asked that question back in Matthew 19 that Jesus responded to by announcing the renewal of all things. Peter heard his master say those words. And Peter didn't forget that because, and this is the clincher, I think, in this in this first Peter or the second Peter 3 passage, the passage where he just talked about the earth being destroyed by water and fire, if we read just a little bit further. It's amazing how often just reading a little bit further makes things clear, right? If we read just a little bit further, Peter will say in verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. So all of this has to inform our how we understand verses 5 through 10. This is how we do good Bible study. We don't just read a passage and say, well, there it is. We study, we think, we compare it to other passages. We, we try to, 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 to build a theology of understanding here, okay? Now, we're not done with Peter yet because Peter also picked up this same theme of renewal of creation in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, 
where he says to his hearers, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. And then he says this, verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. And the Greek word there for restore is another kind of interesting word. It's the word uh, apokatastasis. It's a word which in, in both biblical and secular usage meant to put something back in its original condition. And the verb form of that same word is used in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, when Jesus heals a man's withered hand. He says that that's restored, it's renewed, okay? Um, put back in its original working condition. Peter says, heaven is going to receive Jesus until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning, the time when God is going to put everything back into its original condition, but better. So Peter is both reaffirming in all these passages. He's both reaffirming and elaborating on a long-held Jewish conviction that the Messiah will return things to their original state, the universal renewal of, of the world which reestablishes the original integrity of creation. So, while it's true that believers do go to, to paradise after death for a time of rest until the coming resurrection, which is kind of what Jesus promised the thief on the cross, heaven is not our ultimate destination. God's ultimate plan is not that we leave this earth, that he smokes it, and, and we live in heaven forever, it's that heaven is going to come to a remade and restored earth, which is exactly what Jesus tells us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer, right? That God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the thing. For, for, for far too long, Christians have, have misunderstood our destiny. We've thought that we would leave this, this earth that we love and go up to some kind of ethereal heaven somewhere for all eternity. And most of us didn't really understand what that's, what that's like. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and we were talking about this. And he said, you know, I never really thought the idea of going to heaven and sitting on a cloud for eternity sounded like very much fun. And it's not that the whole thing is about fun, okay? But that's just, for a lot of us, that's not a... That's not an appealing picture. We're, we're meant for activity, for movement, for, for work. And sitting on a cloud forever singing doesn't sound like something that really has a lot of appeal. That's because that's not the end in mind in the Bible. N.T. Wright has written a great deal about this, um, and I will put a link in the show notes to a, a masterful book that he wrote about all this. But the point is that the earliest Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole world what he had done for Jesus at Easter. 
And there, finally, we have our link back to the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so um, another sip of coffee. The, um, the truth is that annihilation is not nearly as impressive as redemption, right? We, we understand that, don't we? Destroying something is not near as potent as, as renewing and restoring and redeeming something, healing it. That's powerful. And when we begin to unpack the teaching of Jesus and his disciples in light of this Jewish expectation of new creation, when we go back and we read the Gospels with this fresh kind of perspective in mind, we see things we never saw. This this whole idea of new creation is dramatically illustrated in all of Jesus' miracles, like giving the blind their sight and raising the dead. And as we see this, all this stuff starts to become clear. All of Jesus' miracles were his, his own restorative acts of new creation, putting things right again, making things the way they were supposed to be, renewing and healing and restoring things to be what they were always supposed to be. Okay, and I know, it, like if this is all new to you, it, this is a lot to take in, right? I understand. For, for a lot of us, this is a total reframing of our biblical worldview, the one that we've thought we've had pretty well nailed down forever, for literally centuries now. Even though all this has been right there in Scripture all along. So if you need to pause and take a minute, let this all sink in, do it. Take a deep breath, hit pause, go for a walk if you need to. Process all this a bit if you need to. That's fine. But the question I, I want to try to address with the rest of our time together today is this. What does new creation actually look like? And I want to say as strongly as I can that it looks exactly like Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the forerunner for the great restoration of God. He is the prototype of the new creation and and of our own ultimate resurrection. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus is the beginning of new creation. Jesus died, yes, but on the third day, he was raised to life, leaving his grave clothes folded neatly in a tomb. We're going to look at that next week. And on the morning of that first Easter Sunday, Jesus walked out of that grave as a radiantly alive, restored human. And he has a new restored body which somehow used up the material of the old body which is why the tomb was empty right his old body wasn't destroyed it was remade and this new resurrected body was different 
it still bore the scars of his old body. Um, it could, uh, except for a few instances where he didn't seem to want to be immediately recognized, everyone seemed to recognize him. It was the same Jesus. He could, he could eat fish with his disciples, apparently. This new Jesus is not someone or something else now. He's still the Jesus they all knew and loved. He walked with them, talked with them, had meals with them, just like before. And his post-resurrection interactions with his friends were so familiar, even kind of ordinary. He was the same as he always was. But at the same time, he was very, very different. He could walk through walls. He could hide his identity sometimes when he wanted to. Different. Better. Restored. Renewed. Reanimated in a kind of a new way. And the point again is that Jesus is the prototype of the renewal of all things. And seeing it that way rescues us from all the vague, unimaginable visions we've been given of, of some kind of eternal life somewhere up above. And again, back to Matthew 19, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus speaks of the, of the renewal of all things, he uses very tangible and familiar terms that involve normal things like houses and lands. He says, in the renewal of all things, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. The renewal of all things means a restored creation with all the, all the beautiful, wonderful things about it that we love, special places, treasured memories, but none of the things that bring sadness or pain, things like death or decay or injustice or oppression or tears or abuse. And the first Christians understood that. They understood that, that, that God's great new world, the anticipated new creation at long last had now begun. It had begun with Jesus when he walked out of that tomb as the new king of the world and inhabiting a new, renewed human body. So God's very first act of new creation was the resurrection of Jesus itself. And the earliest Christians got that. They knew that something radically new had happened that absolutely changed everything about their world. And it drove their understanding of two really, really important things. First, it drove their understanding of the transformation Jesus wanted to work in them as his disciples. That's why Paul talks about, as he talks about transformation and, and discipleship, he repeatedly couches it in language of new creation, right? So 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Now again, we, when we become Christians, we're not destroyed, right? We're remade. And that remaking takes some time sometimes, right? 
He says in Galatians 6, 15, he says, For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is new creation. And the second thing that um, that the resurrection of Jesus um, drove and and changed in the way that the newest the first Christians understood their world is that the resurrection drove their understanding of their new role, their new vocation in the world. They got almost immediately the idea that since Jesus walked out of that tomb, they had a new job to do. His in light of Jesus' resurrection, his followers saw themselves now almost immediately as agents of new creation a kingdom of priests helping to bring about new creation in, in bits and pieces wherever they happen to be. Think back to the times in the Gospels when Jesus is showing them how to love and showing them how to, um, how to interact with the world around them, giving them power to heal and, and change the world, right? He's, tr- he's training them to be agents of new creation a vocation that they will carry on after his re- his resurrection and ascension to bring healing and life and love and justice and peace to the broken, hurting, downtrodden piece of the old creation that they inhabited and touched. And that's why, and, and remarkably few people seem to see this, for Paul, in, 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 in Paul's great treatise on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the immediate implication of the resurrection for Paul is found in the very last verse of that chapter. And we just so miss this. We, we, we know this verse, but we pull it out of its context. And it absolutely belongs in the context. It is, it is for Paul, the, the, the implication since the, Jesus walked out of that tomb and since it means what it means, Here's what that here's what that means for us, okay. Again, in the in the last verse of the most complete discussion of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, Paul says, "Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, therefore, since all of this is true, since Jesus was raised from the dead, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling." in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We have a new job in this world. And it's not just about changing people's legal status. That's part of it. People need forgiveness. We need to share the gospel of forgiveness. But our vocation goes beyond that. We're to be agents of new creation in this world. And the, new, the, the, the first century Christians got that and it empowered them to, to, to endure everything that they endured with hope and, and, and love and joy, even in the midst of things like persecution, and to love people into a new way of being. And the point again is that only the bodily resurrection of Jesus explains the rise and the resolve and the hope and the mission of the first century church. The resurrection of Jesus signaled that a new day had dawned. God was at last 
beginning to heal and, and renew the world with wise, generous, redemptive love. And as Christians, Jesus expects us to carry that wise, generous, redemptive love of God out into the world ourselves with a renewed human vocation. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, everywhere else where good quality podcasts are found. Please visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Check out our website, thejesussociety.com. You can find us on YouTube and Odyssey as well. And if you search for us there, you'll find us. If you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how to do that. and have links all to all of this in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved. <laughs>